Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 282 Specializing in Letting Go. We're joined again this week by Reggie Ray to explore the recurring cycle of conflict in wisdom traditions between the notions of authentic lineage and institutional lineage. This is part two of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Another thing you sort of talk about quite a bit in the Mahamudra program is um, this notion of authentic lineage. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about what the difference is between authentic lineage and what you call institutional lineage. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would be helpful just to um, mention the origins of uh, Christianity. Mm, okay. Um, Jesus uh, was uh, what's called memser, which means he was a bastard. He was called memser. In Hebrew, and he didn't have a legitimate uh, father, Jewish father, and it's believed that a Roman soldier was the father of Jesus. And Mary basically had this, you know, child. And within that culture, being a bastard, you, you couldn't go to the temple. I mean, you were debarred really from the tradition. Mm. And so he did not, you know, he was a very deeply spiritual person, but he had no access to the official you know, institutional lineage. But at the same time, he had a direct relationship with what we would call the Dharmakaya or with the ultimate reality. He had his own relationship. And he said, actually, that's my father, his ultimate reality. It's not this human person. And of course, Jesus was Jewish, and there were many people in his Jewish community who were attracted to, tremendously attracted to him because they felt that the institutional lineage was basically, it was dead, it was driven by politics, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, that dynamic repeats itself over and over and over in, you know, throughout human religious history, and it really repeats itself in Buddhism. And I wrote a book called uh, Academic Monograph, uh, which probably only two or three people have read, called Buddhist Saints in India, and it really explores this whole um, history of Buddhism where the really people who are on fire, such as Buddha Shakyamuni himself, that uh, they're often at odds with the institutions around them because the institutions are always trying to control and territorialize the you know teachings. And that wasn't what the Buddha was about. And when he started, he was actually criticized for not being part of an existing lineage. And one of his, uh, the first story told about the Buddha after his enlightenment, somebody said, well, what's your lineage? You know, I'm not going to study with you unless you can tell me that you belong to some kind of authentic institutional lineage. And he said, well, I don't. And the guy said, why? And he said, because I have my own direct relationship with reality, with what's ultimate, with the enlightened mind. And that's what I'm teaching. I have my own relationship to it. And the guy said, well... Maybe so, maybe not, and he walked off, and he did not become a student of the Buddha. I think that's very significant, that that's the earliest story told about the Buddha. Already there. Already there. Mm -hmm. 
And we've seen that through the whole history of Buddhism and even uh, down to the modern day. So, you know, Buddhism needs institutions in the sense of uh, institutions have been part of every Buddhist culture and they have served the culture in many, many, many ways and many good ways. But the one thing about institutions is, the Buddhist institutions is, which are the monastic institutions, and now they're, they're corporate you know, Buddhist institutions, which we see in the West, is they really are more interested in preserving the forms of Buddhism than the inner essence. And as long as the institutions are ultimately willing to defer to the teachings themselves, you know, to the inner essence of Buddhism, to the experience of enlightenment or awakening or transformation, then they're fine. They're good and we need them. But unfortunately, throughout Buddhist history, there's been a tendency for the institutions to become very self-serving and often to marginalize people who are actually practicing or people who are teaching practice. It's happened over and over and happened with Jogyam Trungpa, and happened with his teachers. It's just, it's just part of how it goes. So, you know, from my point of view, if you want to talk about authentic lineage, ultimately, the only authentic lineage is a lineage that delivers the experience of awakening and freedom and love. Delivers it as a human experience of transformation. And if the institution is not there, it doesn't matter. If the institution is there, that's great. But that's the ultimate marker. Unfortunately, in the Western world, we are so bureaucratically minded that most people simply will not believe anything that doesn't come delivered by the Roman Catholic Church or the Synod of Protestant Ministers or the Council of uh, whatever it may be or the, you know, the Buddhist institutions. They simply will not believe it. You know, they, they want to trust authority. It's, uh, it's sad, but that's the world we live in right now. But I would say Buddhists are less prone to that problem than most other people. So that's the good news. And it sounds like, in some ways, that's the world we have lived in for quite a while, too, in terms of deferring to institutions. I mean, you're just saying this is a kind of uh, primordial, I mean, in some sense, a primordial issue. Yeah, it's a primordial <laughs> issue. You know, what I find very, very kind of interesting and also humorous, my generation, which is the 60s and 70s, they threw out institutions, like throw them out. We want to be free. But those very same people now are hanging on for dear life to very traditional Asian Buddhist institutional forms. I think that's really ironic. What happened to the 60s? Where is everybody? <laughs> what was Steve Jobs or who was it that said, you know, maybe it was just a kind of common uh, understanding, don't trust anyone that's over 30? Yeah. Well, like maybe you guys got over 30 and then it went downhill or something. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> something happens to the human brain, you know? You know, um, this was a story that I didn't really know until I, until I heard you describe it in, uh, in the Mahamudra for the Modern World program, which was uh, Trungpa's life as, in some way, throwing off institutional lineage. Yeah. And it was so striking to me when you described his experience, you know, coming to England and then sort of teaching, starting to teach in a different way and really starting to attract people and then getting a ton of pushback from, yeah. from the institutional lineage of Tibet. Yeah. Yeah. It sounded like such a difficult process to sort of break away from that 
and it sounded really painful, like a process of dying in some way. And I, w- I wondered if you could share a little bit about, you know, sort of Trungpa's experience as you understood it with respect to this kind of breaking from institutional lineage in service of, you know, sort of what you were saying before, that sort of marker of uh, delivering freedom, love, awakening. Well, he, um, he was trained, as I said, in this lineage, which is the, the transformative experience is, is what we're looking for. You know, the uh, people change, people become free, people become fully who they can be in the sense of being awake and present. And so that was his training, and he wanted to teach that. What he didn't understand when he was in Tibet was he thought he could use the traditional forms of Tibetan Buddhism and the community of Tibetan Buddhism to do it. And so he, he went to India, and then he went to England, as you mentioned. And he, he looked at his uh, student, English students, and he saw, he saw something different from what his compatriots saw. His, as his wife discusses in her book on Chogyan Trungpa's life, when the, his compatriots looked at Westerners, they saw barbarians, they saw lay people who shouldn't be given the highest teachings, they saw uh, potential donors who could give money and help them support Tibetan culture in exile. That's what they saw. Chogyam Trungpa saw human beings who wanted to be free and who, who wanted the deepest teachings from him in order to, to be like him, to be free the way he was free. And that's what, he, that's what turned him on. That's what, that's what he taught to. And he, he met them. He met us. He met us halfway. And he, at a certain point, he realized the monastic thing is really getting in the way. And so he, he gave up his robes and became a layperson. And then he realized, I need to share the life of these people I'm trying to teach. And so he got married. And his compatriots, as, as you know from the Mahamudra of the Modern World Program, they threw him out of the monastery that he had founded, actually, with them. And they prevented him from teaching. And they spread rumors that he'd gone insane. And they even uh, even called up the English Secret Service and told them that he was a subversive person and he couldn't get a, actually visa to the United States because of it. They wanted to destroy him because he wanted to give the teachings in an open way to people who desperately wanted the teachings. And uh, it's an old story. You know, you go back through history; people have been, many people have been uh, killed hmm. who were doing what he was doing and doing what I'm doing. They were killed for it because the institution was so threatened by the actual teachings of Buddhism. Hmm. That's heavy. It's very heavy. Mm. And it goes on all the time. And it's still going on throughout the world. Talk to the Zen teachers, talk to the, uh, some of the Theravadan teachers, talk to Westerners like me who are trying to teach Tibetan Buddhism in a new way. It's, uh, there are many Asians who totally get it and are 100% in favor of what, what I'm doing and what other people are doing, but there are a lot more that aren't. And the, it's an institutional thing, it's a cultural thing, it's an ego thing, in my opinion. They do not want to open up. 
It's very heavy. And he, his experience was just about as dark and heavy as I could ever possibly imagine. And as I, as I mentioned in the Mahamudra program, he got to the point where he was ready to kill himself. Mm. Because he felt like, the, I'm not going to be able to teach. These people are stopping me from teaching, and it's all I care about. And so I'm going to kill myself. And luckily his wife stopped him. Good thing he got married. Good thing he got married. The last possible second, right? And I found interesting as well that later on, it's like the institutional lineage reinvited him back in. Like once he had sort of become successful, and, and I'm sure it was different people, um, but I thought that was very, sort of a sad statement in some ways that it took him really breaking away and becoming successful at, you know, having a lot of people paying attention to what he was teaching that took that to sort of be re kind of re invited back into his original sort of tradition. Well, I wouldn't say he was reinvited. Okay. Because he was not reinvited and what he was teaching was not reinvited. He was uh, the traditional uh, Tibetan uh, response, let's say, there were the response on the part of, on the part of the traditional, uh, you know, Tibetan community, Toku community, you know, yeah. was that he, um, because he was so successful, that proved that what he was doing was legitimate. Yes, and therefore, and they wanted a piece of the action too. Well, that, that's that's in some ways that's why I'm saying it's kind of sad because it seems very clear that there's a self-serving, you know thing going on there I think I think it was partly self-serving and I think partly they they realized that they didn't really understand the Western world and he did right and he was connecting and he did have good students and he had people I mean the thing that really you know in to, to speak in favor of the Tibetan community for a minute what really impressed them was the level of practice we were doing it wasn't just that he had a lot of students and he published books and we owned a lot of buildings it was what really got the, the really you know, good teachers was, wow, they're doing Vajragini practice. Wow, these people are doing retreats, which, you know, in Tibet, people, you know, solitary retreat was considered incredibly challenging and terrifying. And here, Rimsha had hundreds of people going into solitary retreat. And so they really saw that what he was doing was good. But I, I also have to say this, and uh, if I were 10 years younger, I wouldn't, but I'm going to say it. I, I really don't think most Tibetan teachers actually um, fully understand what he was doing or what he did. <clears throat> and that surprises me. I thought that after his, uh, his tremendous success, and then number two, that they saw it, that somehow they would be able to open up to the Western environment as nakedly and uh, openly as he did. And I must say, while there's tremendous love for him and devotion and respect for him, strangely enough, I don't really see it happening. I see very few, even the younger Tibetan teachers who really, actually really got what he got, you know, 50 years ago. And that makes me sad. And it makes me realize that I think what the Tibetan community is, you know, really I think what it's come down to in terms of their responsibility is and I know this from, you know, Tokos that are, are close friends and very fine teachers. Their number one thing now is they really have to look after their own their own communities in Asia. Most of the Tokos have monasteries. 
in India, Nepal, Sikkim, that they have to support. And um, they do need to teach Western teachers. But I think for most of the really good ones, they really realize that's really where they have to put their energy. And I think it's appropriate. I don't, again, just to repeat, I don't think what Chogyam Trungpa was doing, honestly, um, there might be one or two teachers where I think it's happening, but generally no. And that's why, you know, for me, I have felt a lot more responsibility and pressure in terms of what I'm doing, in terms of keeping alive his approach, because it's his approach is not Tibetan. His approach is the intersection between ancient culture and modern culture, and exploring and ex exploiting that territory. And that's what the Mahamudra teachings are all about. They're not, uh, you know, Mahamudra teachings are not Vajrayana, they're not Buddhism, they're not Tibetan. They are a series of techniques to lay bare the foundations of human experience. And when we lay those foundations bare, first of all, that, that is what liberation is. And number two, we're not Tibetans, we're not Westerners. We are living in a, in a sphere of human freedom and joy that every single person on this planet has in them and has as an imperative for their own life. And I, I, I think, I, I just think uh, that's why these teachings and his lineage are so important at this exact moment. Okay, great. And, you know, I wanted to also kind of come at it from the opposite angle. So we talked a bit about the kind of uh, the dangers of institutional lineage and mm -hmm. the importance of authentic lineage. And mm -hmm. I was sort of reflecting on modern systems, modern institutions like democracy mm -hmm. and how they work. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a very kind of simple understanding, I'm sure, but mm -hmm. a part of the ways that something like democracy works is it seems like it keeps, uh, at its best, keeps uh, any one group or one person from gaining absolute power. It keeps the power sort of um, spread out. Yeah. And I'm wondering how we can reconcile the importance um, of authentic lineage on the one hand with the recognition that these kind of modern systems in particular um, are sort of a critical way to ensure um, that corruption, extremism, abuse of power don't start creeping in to the communities and cultures and, and institutions that naturally start to form around people that have an authentic realization that they're sharing with people. And, and just what your thoughts are on, on that sort of uh, side of things. Mm -hmm. Well, I think as we see with Buddhism, um, anytime there is what I would call um, triumphalism, and, and that's a, a term used in religious dialogue to refer to the point of view that you have the best teaching and you have the best community and that your job, and Tibetan Buddhism today is really, it's a triumphalist uh, religion. It, it really has a, the kind of attitude that it has the highest teachings. And anytime you have that kind of point of view, you're in ego territory. Anytime there is a belief that your own approach and your own practices and your own ideas are better than other people's, that's what uh, Trungpa Rinpoche called spiritual materialism. It, it's using spirituality to fortify your own ego. So that's the that's the danger i think you know with any group that sequesters itself off in any way you know from any other group and so 
But then we have democracy, which almost has the other problem, which is that um, everybody's values are as good as everybody else's. And if you have enough people who want to do things a certain way, they should be allowed to do it. And I would say, you know, the problem with that point of view is um, there are certain values at the root of, of the human person. And, you know, some of them are actually in our Constitution, you know, uh, in the United States, that really are, uh, are, are uh, agree, you know, the, the idea that people should have life. You know, life is, a, is an inherent right. They should have liberty, you know, they shouldn't be oppressed. And they should be able to find the deepest happiness in their life. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what happens if there are no values beyond that? I mean, what if people make themselves happy by actually degrading themselves and, um, you know, making themselves miserable? So, you know, it, it's interesting. We're sort of in between these two things. You know, we don't want to have some religion like Buddhism come in and take over because we're going to be right back where we started. Not that that would happen really anyway. Well, no, it wouldn't. But, you know, I mean, the Christian right at a certain point had that aspiration. Sure, they sure. To take over. And on the other hand, if we just let everything sort of go and, and just give up on in terms of trying to discover any basic values in human life, then we're not making that, we're not helping people. That's not helpful anything goes approach isn't really helping other people. So I think we're at a very interesting point in modern history where what I feel needs to happen is there, you know, there needs to be, we need to take on a real exploration of the human person from a spiritual point of view and see what is it, you know, what are the fundamental qualities that really bring true happiness to people. And we need to find a way to deliver it that doesn't require people to sign up for institutions. And that's what I'm trying to do, you know, with, with my teaching. Hmm. I mean, it seems like um, in some ways this is such a challenging area because as soon as humans start getting together, they inevitably have to create some sort of structure or system to be able to, to work together efficiently or effectively. That's, you see, you're right on it now. That's it. How organized do you have to be, like in my case, yeah. how organized... I mean, you're obviously not a government. I mean, you're not, <laughs> there's not 330 million people you're no, trying to serve. No, but, but, you know, everybody faces it. You know, mm -hmm. every, every spiritual community. And every person who's an individual practitioner, you know, should I be part of a community? You know, should I get together with other people? How much organization do we need to deliver something really deep and really authentic for people? And then how much is too much? Yeah. And, and this is sort of one of the big questions, you know, on, on, on my mind. And I think it's one we've been exploring a lot with Buddhist geeks, which is not just what does Buddhism have to offer the modern world, but what does the modern world have to offer Buddhism? And it seems like one of the problems that I've, I keep running into or keep seeing is that, um, you know, teachers and practitioners, you know, people that are really going deep in their thing, they're, they're like specialists, you know, they really yeah. have specialized just like, you know, you've specialized in 40 years of practice and study and teaching. Mm -hmm. And so we're not experts at institutions and, you know, uh, technology and, you know, that's not our, uh, our specialty. So kind of, I guess the big, bigger question for me is like, 
as you've done this for the last 40 years or so, what kinds of things have you sort of learned that need to change on the institutional front, on the kind of the systems level front of how we do things? I mean, you're, you're kind of mentioning a really important principle. It sounded like like having as much uh, organization as needed, but no more. Are there other things that you've sort of seen in terms of things you've learned from the modern world that could apply to how you um, kind of self-organize as, as a community or just things that you might sort of throw out there? Because so many of the problems that seem to be coming up, you know, all the scandals in the Zen tradition, mm-hmm. they seem to really have a lot of the roots in um, feudal systems leading for, to people seeing the teacher in a certain way. It's institutionalized through the koan system in terms of how people view the teacher. It's institutionalized in terms of the very strict top-down hierarchy. You know, all of those things seem to really be a big part of why these scandals, which in a modern context are simply not okay. You know, the New York Times and LA Times are sort of writing about them, right? Like, I mean, and yet, you know, there's something of real depth that is being offered in in those we can't say because there's scandal, there's nothing good there. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering, as a teacher, you must have thought about some of these issues. Well, you said something right at the beginning, which I want to come back to. Okay. Um, something, I don't remember it exactly, but something along the lines of that uh, I wanted to, you, you were reporting that I had said that I wanted to offer these uh, Mahamudra teachings in, in an open way, mm. to really, to everybody. Yes. <clears throat> at the same time, without sacrificing uh, depth. And I would actually turn it around, and I would say, unless these teachings are offered in a completely open way, I am sacrificing the depth. And what I mean by that is, the more Buddhism holds on to its identity, its cultural identity, its, uh, its social identity, which means like the hierarchies that you mentioned, its patriarchy, its feudal approach, the more it hangs on to that, the more it sacrifices its own depth. You know, it's, it's very interesting that mm. Buddhist institutions and Buddhist organizations and Buddhist lineages often feel they have to protect the teachings from the modern world. Mm-hmm. And, and my understanding from Chogyam Trungpa is the more you try to protect the teachings from the modern world, the more you are sacrificing the depth of the teachings. That's interesting. In, 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 can you say a little bit more? In, in what sense is it sacrificing the, the depth? We, you know, I shouldn't be a specialist in meditation. That's not really what, what this is, lineage is about, or a specialist in being in solitary retreat. I need to be a specialist in letting go. I need to be a specialist in letting go of my previous ideas, my previous assumptions about the modern world, about spirituality, about who people are, about higher and lower. If I can, you know, through the whole point of Mahamudra is to is to identify all the places where we hold back as people, all the places where we have all kinds of assumptions about reality, and therefore we don't give reality a chance. And we need to let go of those and we need to meet the modern world. We need to meet the internet. We need to be, we need to meet hospitals and corporations. We need to go in and in a completely open way 
and see what the possibilities are and see who the people are. So, you know, the, um, the whole process, I think, of uh, this idea that by uh, opening to the modern world we're sacrificing the teachings is actually completely wrong and backwards. Mm, I really appreciate that. I was just remembering um, John Kabat-Zinn at one point said, the Dharma doesn't need to be policed. It can take care of itself. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I, I wonder if that's part of the, the impetus to try to protect things is thinking that somehow like the Dharma is going to be at risk in some way. I think people do think that. Yeah. What's at risk is their concept of the Dharma. <laughs> that's, I think that's a really great point. Yeah. Open, 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 open. Trust reality. Trust this encounter. Trust this conversation. Trust this situation. Trust means you let go. And when you let go, you can meet reality as it actually is. And it can be anything it wants to. I mean, who has a right to say that um, business in the modern world doesn't have spiritual possibilities? Who knows? A lot of people think it doesn't. A lot of people think corporations are bad. Right. Who knows? That's just somebody's thought. Why don't we go and find out? And let's see what happens when we go into whatever possible situation is there. That process frees the practitioner. When I do that, I am, that's how I free myself, is by opening myself to threatening situations. It's interesting when you talk about it in those terms, that understanding of quote-unquote dharma isn't limited to the context of being on a solitary retreat or meditating i mean the context of running a business which you know something that i do yeah um, i very much have been trying to catch up with my understanding of what does it mean to practice as 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 business Mm -hmm. and it's been interesting to see like that i actually for a long time haven't seen them as equal opportunity mm-hmm. practice grounds mm-hmm. and that, that that in some ways the way you're describing it and i totally agree with this is that that's actually a delusion mm-hmm. to think that this context is more of an opportunity to practice than this other context very much so yeah um so i really appreciate that that sort of broader kind of broader vision for for what this is about well you know coming back to Mahamudra there's a saying in Mahamudra which you've heard me say infinite times I'm sure you know over the years that the goal of practice is to develop a complete openness and acceptance to all situations and emotions and to all people and to realize that reality itself from top to bottom is always showing itself it's perfect it's perfection And, you know, only through developing a a complete and unobstructed openness to the world do we actually get to experience and enjoy and be liberated by the life that we have. That's the Dharma. And any kind of retraction or retreat or setting up oppositions is uh, not helpful. It just imprisons us. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, 
idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.